another edition of the Alonzo Bet. We're your hosts. I'm Aaron. And I'm Sam. And you may be surprised to hear we've got another cracker of an episode for you today. We have some breaking news in the sports world that we're just going to jump right into. I can't even give you a show outline because this absolutely crazy, crazy interview with Rob Manfred came out just a couple of hours ago. Sam, what happened? So Rob Manfred was on the Dan Patrick radio show and... The genius that he was, he put his foot in his mouth and he said, we weren't going to play more than 60 games no matter how the negotiations with the players went. Now, the MLB just spent a long time changing the the offers that they gave specifically to avoid a a multi-billion dollar labor labor grievance from the players. I'm not a a labor lawyer. I'm no expert in this, but I can't imagine that this helps their case. Absolutely not. I mean... The stipulation on the grievance is going to be, did the owners negotiate in good faith, not just about paying players, but more importantly, about playing the maximum possible number of games? Because that was stated under the March agreement, that if the MLB instituted the season, it was supposed to be for as many games as possible. Exactly right. And so what we have here now is we have the head of negotiation for the side that is going to have the grievance filed against them saying no matter what the players offer, because Dan Patrick even followed up. So Rob Manfred's exact quote is, the reality is we weren't going to play more than 60 games no matter how the negotiation with the players went or any other factor. Dan Patrick follows that up with the question, even if the players accepted everything you offered, there was no way you were going to go above 60 games. Rob Manfred said, essentially, no. Yeah, so, and and to put this in context, they could have gone. They could have met the players halfway, gone to sixty-five games. It would have cost the league, the owners collectively, two hundred forty million more dollars, and it would have just changed the season. They could have still done sixty-five games in sixty-three days. You just would have had teams play a total of three double headers instead of zero, which is pretty normal for a yeah. season. But I guess the point that I was trying to make is that uh, now that Manfred said this, this could cost them a lot more than two hundred forty million dollars. It's going to cost them a lot more than two hundred forty million dollars. So. Baseball's back, baby, and we have some more baseball (laughs) news coming to you, but baseball's back, and we already have an unbelievable show of just being disconnected, arrogance and disconnection um, from the world and from the players with Rob Manfred's unbelievable gaffe today on the Dan Patrick Show. So if you get a chance to listen to that, uh, take a listen for yourself and decide, you know, was what he was saying nefarious, and was it a slip of the tongue, or... Did he know exactly what he was saying? And he didn't really read it or see it in a way that it could be interpreted um, so negatively by players and people on the players' side. Um, Outside of the baseball world, we will come back to baseball in a second, but outside of the baseball world, we have uh, a really interesting signing in the NFL. The Pats went ahead and signed Cam Newton earlier this week to a one-year, seven-and-a-half big one contract. And immediately it turned the Pats to favorites in the AFC, which has to be reasonable. Yeah, they're now betting favorites at plus 110. The Bills are plus 180. I'm actually not sure what the odds were before this, but I assume the Bills were slight favorites. I mean, the Pats had a dumpster fire of an offense. Jared Stidham was going to be the quarterback. Of course, Bill Belichick's still their coach. They're still the Pats. They still won 11-5 the year Matt Castle was their quarterback. But they have a lot less uh, you know, position, skill player talent than they did that year. The defense was, of course, amazing last year. Uh, 
But yeah, I think this is an incredible signing for the Patriots. Cam Nugent's sort of become a forgotten man because of injuries, but you know, as recently as the first half of 2018, before he got injured, he was playing like a top five or ten quarterback in the NFL. He's, of course, a former NFL MVP. Yeah, and, and when he's healthy, I don't think anyone can argue with the fact that he's a good player. Yeah, he's a re- he's a really great player. And and one thing that I'll note about the Patriots is I think they're the perfect fit for him because Cam is a guy who can use his legs, uh, is not always the most accurate passer, but is actually, like, in his times, like, playing in the West Coast offense, did show pretty good accuracy. I mean, but, he almost had a 68% completion rate yeah. in 2018. Yeah, yeah, that that's the year, of course. And, you know, but what, what I want to stress is that as he's coming back from injuries, as maybe some of his old skills aren't still there, Belichick is the coach that is not going to try to force Cam to adhere to a system that he wants to play. He's a coach that's going to design a system that uh, emphasizes his players' strengths. Yeah. Uh, so I think when you have a player as talented as Cam Newton and you have a coach as amazing as Bill Belichick who knows how to use his players' strengths, I think it's a great match. Now, as a Jets fan, I was heartbroken to see the signing because I'm finally thinking, okay, Tom Brady's <laughs> out of the AFC East. Yeah. The division's <laughs> wide open. I know the Bills were great last year, but I don't believe in Josh Allen as a quarterback. They have a great defense, but you know, I don't think Josh Allen's going to carry the this Bills team to be a you know a division winner. They could certainly win on the back of their defense. And Sam Darnold, I think, is a future top five quarterback in the NFL, just an incredible talent. And the Jet Joe Douglas is finally putting the right pieces around him, building an offensive line that was the worst in football last year, at some points unwatchable. I think it's going to be about average last year, but it's going to allow Sammy D's to... Average this year. Sorry, yeah, I think it's going to be average this year, but that would allow Sammy D to just show how elite he is. Um, but, you know, now that... The quarterback situation has changed from, you know, in New England, has changed from Jared Stidham to Cam Newton. I think the Patriots immediately have to be considered the massive favorites to win. In fact, plus 110 seems incredibly too low to me. I think I might, as much as it would hurt me to personally to bet on the Patriots, yeah. I might just go bet That's on them right after bet. this. Uh, and I think we could be watching a super interesting storyline in the next NFL season with. Bill Belichick, who I think by all accounts does not have a good offense. He definitely has a good defense, but even with Cam Newton, this is not a good offense by any means. And I think it'll be interesting to see if the Patriots really play well. What we could see is Bill Belichick really solidify his lore that he's already basically got locked up. He's definitely a Hall of Fame coach. People argue he's the best coach of all time. He could solidify that beyond a question of a doubt. And meanwhile, Tom Brady could go down to Tampa and struggle, and it could raise some questions about where his legacy lies in the history of the NFL. Well, here's the elephant in the room, though. Tom Brady was bad last year. Right. He was not good last year. Right. And I think there can be some people sitting here and just thinking, did the Patriots actually just upgrade the quarterback position compared to last year when they... Won the AFC East fairly easily. They sort of had a bad end to the season and, and crashed out in the divisional round. Lost to the Dolphins to lose their bye. Sorry, they crashed out in the wildcard round to the to the Titans after losing their bye by losing to the Dolphins right. in Week 17. So it ended very poorly for them, but they were really a great team for the first 
you know, 12, 13 weeks of the season. But they were never, they never had a great quarterback under center last yeah, year. Yeah, they had a, they had a generationally good defense last right. year. Maybe you say that's not repeatable and there's going to be some reversion to the mean there. But I also think you could see the offense be better than it was last year. Definitely. Um, they're definitely more dynamic. I mean, you knew what was coming from the Pats. They were going to ground and pound you. Um, occasionally a play action and a short slant across the middle most of the time. Um, now you have a lot uh, more dynamic offense there with Cam Newton. And, I, you know, I'm not a huge Patriots fan. I'm not a huge NFL fan even. But I do think this will be an interesting storyline, and I'm excited to see how it plays out. Yeah, so uh, another exciting piece of news today as we film uh, on July 1st is that today is Bobby Bonilla Day. Can you explain what that is to our viewers, Aaron? Because I'm a little too personally close to the situation to maybe explain it impartially. Okay, Bobby Bonilla Day is not a holiday, but rather more of a day of remembrance, I think, for Mets fans, of truly one of the deals that best encapsulates um, the wonderful, wonderful owners that the Wilpons are. Who actually, I think... Since we've last recorded, uh, we haven't discussed this news, which is that the Wilpons have now said we will be selling by the end of Oh, that's right. Yeah, that is so, right. So Mets fans everywhere can rejoice. The Wilpons will not be our owners by the end of the year, and that is just fantastic news. That is great news for Mets fans. And so speaking of the Wilpons, this Bobby Bonilla day is kind of a, it's kind of an internet joke now, I think, but... Um, what it is, is it's the day every year that the Mets pay Bobby Bonilla his deferred payment from a 1998 contract? Nine, so they released him after 1999 with uh, $5.9 million still owed to him. However, uh, the Wilpons wanted to keep this money at the time, so they offered him a deferral payment where they would pay him $1.19 million dollars uh, every year, uh, starting in 2011 and ending in 2035, adding up to a total payout of $29.8 million. Uh, so a huge increase over the $5.5 million they still owed him. This would come out to about 8% annual interest. Uh, and the reason the Wilpons agreed to this is they're currently wanting to invest this money uh, in the you may have heard of it, Bernie Madoff Investment Company, uh, where they were earning 10, 10% returns. So they viewed this as a good as a good reinvestment of their money. Of course, uh, history showed that to uh, actually turn out to be an illegal Ponzi scheme. And they ended up losing a lot of money from that and becoming really bad owners of a New York City baseball team because of it. So Sam, you actually gave yourself a gift this Bobby Bonilla day. And that gift was a justification in your mind for how the Bobby Bonilla signing and the payments that the Mets now make to him every year, it's actually not that bad. Yeah, and so I can't believe this, but I've actually never heard about this until I, I read this on the Twitterverse today. And that's that after uh, the Mets deferred the Bobby Bonilla payment at the end of the 99 season, they reinvested that money by trading for Mike Hampton's contract. So Mike Hampton was a pitcher. He actually went on to win the 2000 NLCS MVP for the Mets. So that in itself was sort of a good outcome for the Mets in, in this cascading of events. 
Uh, of course, Mike Hampton, also one of the greatest hitting pitchers of all time. Mike Hampton hit dingers. That's yeah, right. well, I think he won the Silver Slugger from like 1999 to 2003 yeah. every year. But of course, uh, part of that was that he was playing in Coors starting in the year 2001. That's helpful. And that's because the the Rockies signed him as a free agent after the 2000 season, the one season he spent with the Mets. And that, uh, you know, often if a player of a certain level is signed, uh, you will get a compensatory pick in the draft. And the compensatory pick that the Mets received for Mike Hampton going to the Rockies ended up turning into David Wright. Basic, that's a pretty good yeah, player. The, for be- them. the best position player in Mets franchise history. So from that perspective, the outcomes of the Bobby Bonilla deferral actually don't look too bad uh, to Mets fans. And you might even say it was the best thing to basically happen to the Mets in the last two decades. Uh, that's quite a justification, Sam. Um, but as usual, I am impressed with the <laughs> mental gymnastics that accompanies being a fan of uh, the Mets, Jets, and uh, the Knicks recently as well. Uh, moving on from Bobby Bonilla Day, which it is today, um, I do finally want to give us a small preview of what we're going to see um, now that we've gotten through some flashbang news. Uh, after we finish up with the news, we have a couple more things. We're going to go into our stat corner segment, and today we're talking about RE24. Um, that's run expectancy, 24. Yeah, that's the stat we sort of promised you as maybe an alternative, an advanced statistics alternative to RBIs in mm-hmm. our Father's Day episode. I think at that point I, I incorrectly called it RE27. That's right. It's actually RE24. We now know the yeah. correct name. Um, and then finally, we have a cool interview with Jeremy Wolf at the end of the segment. Jeremy is an ex-minor league baseball player, current executive director of a nonprofit organization called More Than Baseball. You may have seen them in the news lately. They've been getting some donations from big leaguers such as Adam Wainwright to help out with minor leaguers um, who have been affected by COVID or have lost their jobs. The organization exists more broadly to help minor leaguers. So we haven't really gone too deep into any minor league baseball uh, yet on this pod, but minor league baseball is the heartbeat of baseball. It's what makes it run. um, And there's so many amazing guys and players down there who never get the opportunity to play in the bigs. So it's something we'd like to keep an eye on moving forward. And uh, we're happy to have Jeremy on later in this episode to get us started with some primers about life in the minor leagues, what more than baseball does, and um, minor league baseball in general. So with that, we'll go back to news. Sam, did you have anything else? Yeah, so there is like a bit of sad news that I think is worth discussing, and that's the situation going on with uh, ex-MLB player Andrew Tolles, yeah. who was recently arrested for trespassing on, on some property. But really the sad news here is that, you know, he was not in like a mentally coherent state. He's been dealing with bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. I think his family said they were even happy to see him get arrested because they actually knew where he mm-hmm. was. Uh, so I think he's been in and out of institutions and had trouble dealing with these problems. So we really hope, you know, Andrew Tolles was a beloved player in the major leagues before he left it. And we hope to see him get back on his feet and whether or not he ends up back in baseball is sort of secondary to just seeing him get healthy. 100%. And I think that this story is so interesting because there aren't that many times every year where somebody can pick up a paper and really realize in such a strong way, like baseball players are humans. You know, they go through all the same stuff everybody else does. They look superhuman on the screen. They hit balls a million miles and they throw them a million miles an hour. They, uh, in the case of Andrew Tolles, they run like lightning. 
But at the end of the day, these are all human beings who struggle with their own problems um, and who have their own personal triumphs outside the game. And so uh, this is obviously a very sad story and a very dangerous situation for Andrew. Um, and we hope the best for him and his family. We'd love to see him back on the field, but that's not really what's important here. What's important is that he is safe and that he can get the help that he needs um, for the afflictions that he faces. So um, that I agree with you. I think that is a really interesting story, and I'm glad we covered it. The other thing that I wanted to throw out there uh, is a little bit on the happier note. Uh, it's that we have MLB transactions again. We have players moving yeah. teams. We have free agents signing. Uh, if you remember, the moratorium on all this was lifted last Friday, but we're seeing the first motion now. So, um, Sam, what have you seen out of the uh, transaction wire? So, long as that Matt Kemp uh, was signed by the Rockies, this may have in part been motivated by the fact that Ian Desmond announced that he would not he would be foregoing the MLB season this year. He posted a long and, and fairly moving post on Instagram about his decision. Uh, it's related to both uh, sort of the the movements towards social justice recently, the risks of coronavirus, and basically him just wanting to be at home to be a resource for his children in these difficult times in the world. And I think that's a very you know commendable decision by him. You know, not to say it's 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 bad players who are choosing to do the opposite and play, but just that. Given the the weird nature of this season, we should really respect every player's decision to do what they wish. And I think since he is not at specific health risks, he will be foregoing his salary as well. Yeah. And I think that his departure leads directly to this Matt Kemp signing. Maybe you could combine it with the Mark Reynolds departure because perhaps the Rockies hope he embodies a similar role for them. He was absolutely atrocious last year. He wasn't doing great in spring training previously. And he's 35. Um, but don't forget, in 2018, he had 25 bombs for the Doyers. And he hit 290. Uh, he only slugged 481. But for an old guy, that's all right. And so if he can come up for the Rockies and just hit at home or something and somehow clap, you know, eight home runs or ten home runs for them in 60 games, I, I think they'd be okay with that. I don't know. It's It's got to be somewhat related to there being a DH because, I mean, he's just like a dumpster fire in the field at this yeah, point in his he's career. basically, I mean, he's basically nothing out there. You might yeah. as well just leave the spot I, open. I don't know. I, if, if I'm a team that, you know, has an open spot at either DH or in the outfield, I'm much sooner making a call to Yasiel Puig than I am to Matt Kemp. Well, sure, but the price tag on those two players is significant. Uh, yeah, that that's fair. Uh, and Yasi can play the outfield. I, I don't need a need at DH yeah, to, that, that, to pick up Puig. That's true. And we will see Puig sign soon. I, I don't think there's any way Puig sits this season out. Um, another guy who has actually opted out already of this season hurts me. Um, that's Mike Leak. Mike Leak recently opted out. And yeah, for the D-backs who are looking to make some moves and who might be a little thinner at pitching, Mike Leak is a great innings eater. I saw him uh, almost take a perfect game out in when he was playing for the Mariners when I was at Safeco. He went eight and a third or eight and two thirds. Um, so this is tough. Uh, another couple moves. The Mets signed Melky Cabrera. I love that. Yeah, Mets have been making a lot of sort of peripheral signings on their 60-man roster, filling out. You know, players that are not great, but players that can be major league players mm -hmm. if someone gets injured. I like the moves they've been making. And then uh, still in that National League East, now that we're there, we also have Ryan Zimmerman opting out. And yeah. Joe Ross, but who cares? 
Um, Ryan Zimmerman. Okay. Well, don't forget that Joe Ross pitched Game Five of the World Series this past year when Max Scherzer couldn't Damn, get out of bed. Damn, that's so true. And it was actually like pretty decent. It was pretty good. Yeah. And don't forget that every single year Joe Ross is on my fantasy team for at least one start. It's almost ritualistic at this point. I'll pick him up and put him on the bench just so that he's on the roster. I, um, I know you care too much about the margins of your fantasy <laughs> success to do that. Sam is right. Um, but beyond that, there's only one other uh, transaction I think is interesting. The Padres actually traded for Jorge Mateo. So everything we've said so far are signings and opt-outs. The Padres actually traded for Jorge Mateo from the A's. This is a guy who's been in the minor, who's been in the minors for a while, but looks like he had some potential early on in his career as a middle infield prospect. Um, the I'm sorry, the Padres get him, and they might try him out in the outfield, but we'll have to see whether this was a reasonable signing or not. He's almost 26. Um, he's really never played Major League Baseball. Actually, he has zero Major League at-bats. Um, but and, and he's really struggled with his bat at the upper levels of the minors. Yeah. Has not really performed at all in AAA. One thing I will say is the fact that he has like an 80-grade speed tool could take into effect in some of these, you know, runner starts on second situations and extra innings. I think having these speedsters on your roster is going to be valued a lot more than it has in the past for these teams. Definitely. I, I think that immediately you start to, in a 60-game season when you're playing extra inning games um, with a runner on second base to start the inning, you immediately have to consider carrying a guy like that because you have the extra roster spot and if you can even get him to be serviceable in the field or at the dish, it's, it's valuable enough that I think you'd do it. So that kind of rounds out our news, our transactions. Boy, did we have a lot for you. But it's exciting that we have sports coming back and all this news coming down the wires. So with that, we're going to go into our stack corner. As we mentioned earlier, we have RE24 today. Again, that stands for run expectancy based on 24 base outs. What and the hell does that mean, So, Sam? So 24 base out states basically describes the 24 possible scenarios there are for there to be runners on base and certain number of outs in the inning. So what do I mean by that? There are eight different configurations of runners on base. That's base is empty, base is loaded, a runner on first, a runner on second, a runner on third, a runner on first and second, a runner on first and third, and a runner on second and third. So, Just every possibility of yeah. where runners could be on the bases. There's eight total. Yeah. And then there are three different out possibilities, zero outs, one outs, and two outs. Of course, once we're at three outs, the inning is over. So if you multiply these two things together, three times eight, some simple combinatorics for you guys, and that is 24 scenarios of base out states. And that's the starting position for RE24. They say when a batter comes up to the plate, there are 24 possibilities of what it will look like. And... Then what RE24 does is they calculate over a season or maybe a little longer, I actually don't know for sure, they calculate what is the run expectancy of each of these configurations of runners on base and outs. And what run expectancy means is it's how often is a any run, just one run needs to be scored for this base configuration to count in the run expectancy But, if, but if more runs are scored, of course, that's included as well. So, so like, basically what it's doing is it's taking an average over all the times that this state occurred, how many runs were scored in that inning. And, yeah. and, and, that's, and that's what the run expectancy is. So an example is that 
With the bases empty and zero outs, there's a 46.1% chance of scoring a run. Well, and I guess that, I, I wouldn't put it quite that way because on average you will score 0.461 sorry, runs that in Sorry, yes, Sam is correct. Yeah. It's not that there's a 46.1% chance you score a run. It's on average a team will score almost half a run. Yeah, and the difference between what Aaron and I said is that uh, on average this is taking into the situations where you score more than one run. Exactly. Um, and then on the flip side, with the bases empty and two outs... There's less, you're scoring less than a tenth of a run. Um, and on, and then again, on the flip side of that, even with two outs, but the base is loaded, you're scoring 0.74 runs or almost three quarters of a run um, in that configuration. So each one of these configurations is worth a different amount. Some are even worth more than one run. And of run. course, the best configuration is basis loaded, no outs. That's right. How many runs is that? 2.3 almost. Yeah, so that's a good situation that's to get yourself in. That's a very good situation to be in. And so RE24 uses this as the starting position, and then it basically makes a very simple calculation that says, okay, if you come up with the bases loaded and nobody out, and you can't find a way to score a run, we're punishing you for that. Yeah. More so than if you come up with nobody on and two outs. Yeah, and basically the way it does this is it takes your run expectancy at the end of your at-bat, subtracts your run expectancy at the beginning of your at-bat, and then adds all the runs that were scored in the at-bat over the course of your at-bat, and that's the number of runs that you quote-unquote created with your at-bat. And the reason that you have to add the number of runs that were actually scored is because, for example, imagine there's no one on and you hit a solo home run. The base, the, the the state you're in is exactly the same. There's still no buggy on. There's still the same number of outs. So the difference between your run expectancy before and after the at-bat is the same. So to give you credit for the home run, they need to then add the run that was scored. Exactly right. And so this, as we mentioned on the last episode, is kind of the advanced uh, version of RBIs. Yeah. It is explaining how good a player was at producing runs not creating runs because that can happen in the field or it can happen at the plate but at producing runs at actually plating runners in their at bats but it does so in a way that is context dependent so it matters what the bases looked like when you came up it matters what the rest of the league is doing it matters what situation you're in and for that reason we i think see it as a a slightly better uh, way of telling you what RBIs is trying to tell you. And for, yeah, and for those of you who are, who want to say things like, well, I don't like, you know, WOBA or WRC plus because it doesn't take into account when a guy, you know, moves a runner over from second to third and gets out versus strikes out. RE24 can, can see the difference between those two right. things. It is better because they advance the runner. They're still going to have a negative run expectancy from that play appearance because Anytime you get out, your run expectancy basically goes down. But, exactly. But, you know, it, it does show that that's better than striking out. And to give some examples of calculating a run expectancy, as Aaron already mentioned, with the bases empty and zero outs, uh, you're on average going to score 0.46 runs. With, uh, and then with, the, with no outs and a run run first, you'll score 0.83 runs. So let's just say you have a leadoff single to start the inning. Your RE24 is going to see plus 0.37 runs. So that's just a simple example of how this is calculated. And, so, and conversely, if you were to get out, 
the run expectancy goes to 0.243 with one out and no runners on. So you'd lose about 0.22 on your run expectancy. So it's cumulative over a season. And again, that's something to keep in mind. This is not a ratio the same way that RBIs is not a ratio. It's a counting stat. And if you're injured, your RE24 can't possibly be as high as if you're healthy. And so to round out our understanding of this, Sam, I think it would be good to give some examples of good RE24s from the last full season and what some bad RE24s looked like. Yeah, so I think uh, number the, the top four of the past year were Trout, Rendon, Bellinger, and Yelich. So again, the people you'd expect. Yep. Uh, and Freddie Freeman's right after there, a prolific run scorer. Alex Bregman, the, you know, this is, this yeah. is normal. And uh, so the best... Uh, Trout was the best, and he was at 66 runs uh, created through RE24. So again, we've talked in the past about how, you know, 10 runs is about equivalent to a win. So this is sort of 6.6 runs above. Although I guess I'm not sure what zero RE24 is in terms of like average or replacement level. I think it's below average. Yeah. Um, Basically, I yeah, I'm not sure if, if if zero has much meaning out of RE24. I don't think it does. Other than that, your your plague appearances produce zero runs mm-hmm. on the season, but like how that relates to the average distribution in the MLB is of course different because you know more than zero runs are created in a season, right? So the average can't be zero. But I actually think so. The top of the leaderboard makes sense. The bottom I find to be super interesting. Um, the lowest RE24 last year was Lorenzo Kane at minus 20.72. But there's some other guys on there that are really interesting. Randall Gritchick is number two. As you go down the list, you actually see Paul DeYoung, who had a WRC plus of 100 last year, so a little below league average. But even Avisel Garcia, who had a 112 WRC plus, finds himself with a minus six RE24. And I think how I would interpret these numbers, and correct me if you feel differently, Sam, but how I would interpret these numbers is that these guys just did not do a lot to contribute to the run production of their team last year. And I wouldn't be surprised that if you went and could get one of their teammates talking very candidly about their performance, they'll say, sure, Paul Paul, Paul DeYoung played great last year. He played a good defense and he played 664 plate appearances. You know, he got up to the plate a ton. But at the end of the day, it just seemed like he couldn't move runners over when it mattered. It seemed like he couldn't get a sack fly when it mattered. These are things that players often feel that RE24 is trying to calculate. And so if they did their job right, that's my feeling as to how those numbers would be. Yeah, so I think it is true that, you know, if if your RE24 is much worse than, let's say, your WRC Plus was. So, like, people like, you know, DeYoung, who is an average hitter by WRC Plus, but was quite bad by RE24. It's certainly true that you probably performed worse in situations where you had the opportunity to drive runs in Mm -hmm. and things like this. Now, the question I ask after that is, well, are you really going to say that Paul DeYoung was, like, unclutch last year? Or is this sort of just random noise? And I would tend to lean towards the fact that it's probably random noise. I don't think you're going to see Paul DeYoung have an RA24 much worse than his WRC Plus next or, or this upcoming year. Right. Although it's 60 games, so who knows. But I guess my point is that I, it's going to take a very sustained sample size of year after year of someone underperforming or overperforming this for me to be able to like come out there and say yeah like I think this is an example of a guy who's being on clutch or being clutch well I think that's um 
I think that's a little unfair without... I don't think you yet have knowledge of what the standard deviation is on this stat or what type of time frame we need to look at to see it normalize. Um, but gut feeling, you're probably right. Yeah. Um, one other. I just want to do one more here because I think it's really interesting. Um, Hunter Dozier last year had a WRC Plus of 124. He had an RE7 or RE24 of 6.4 almost, 6.4. Adam Jones sits two spots ahead of him on the list. He had a WRC Plus of 87. So almost 40 points lower than Hunter Dozier, but his RE24 is effectively the same. What does that mean? I don't know, but I'll tell you what. I watched a lot of D-back games, and I saw Adam Jones do a lot of things that helped them score runs. That's all I'm going to say. I, I, will, I, I seem to remember that on one of our earliest episodes when we were doing division previews, you went on like an impassioned rant about how good you thought Adam Jones was. I, Adam Jones <laughs> played good baseball last year, and I, we appreciated him down in the desert. Um, and so thank you for humoring me on that, Sam, and our <laughs> listeners. Um, and with that, we're going to wrap the stack corner up. And as we mentioned at the top of the episode, we are so, so excited to have Jeremy Wolf joining us right now. Uh, please stay tuned. This is going to be a great interview. All right. We are back with a very, very special guest today. This is none other than the Jeremy Wolf. You may know him as a Brooklyn Cyclone. You may know him as the executive director of More Than Baseball, or you may know him by his very own website moniker, creator, Jeremy Wolfer, baseball player. And finally, he is a Israeli Olympic baseball player. Jeremy, thanks for coming oh, that's, on with that's us today. That's to me. I can hear it. Shabbat shalom, you guys. Shabbat shalom to you nice as well. Nice to be here. So were, were you all the way away from Shabbat? So you'll be teammates with, with Ty Kelly then? Right? Ty Kelly, yeah. yeah. Ty Kelly, uh, Blake Galen, Ian Kinsler, Danny Valencia, Jeremy Bleich. Got a squad, man. Big squad. Danny Valencia, big surprise to me that he's Jewish. <laughs> yeah. It's a very surprised Jewish. Once you meet him, you go, Jewish. But when you see him, not Jewish. All right, so Jeremy, uh, I think the first thing we want to get into here is more than baseball. We want to give you an opportunity to talk about it, but we want to tell you that we haven't really covered uh, too much about minor league baseball on here, but we really love minor league baseball. We're right yeah. next to the Trenton Thunder here. We're big Thunderheads. I've been to their Yankee affiliate. I've been to many Binghamton Mets games in my life. There you go. They are, are no longer Mets, uh, Mets affiliate. And so uh, tell us about what More Than Baseball does, Jay. More Than Baseball is something I started when uh, several months after I got done playing. I got injured my second year with the Mets. I was a 31st round pick, played two years. Uh, some of you may know that Tim Tebow played for the Mets. I was his locker mate, and then I happened to not uh, – there's a whole story in that. We can talk about that later. Yeah, maybe but we'll uh, get to that. Maybe we'll get, we'll to, get that. to that. So I, played, so I played with the Mets, and uh, I get, like, very honored for the opportunity to play for my favorite team. I, I loved it. I, everyone we, I met there was awesome. The, the, uh, but the environment itself in minor league baseball is not conducive to the development of these players. They're getting paid very little. They have to get their own housing, food, and equipment. And so uh, my, more than baseball is the response to the issues that I saw in minor league baseball, but it's not built as a place of, of screaming from the rooftops and – begging people to change it. It's, it's working within the system 
uh, to fix the problem. The problem is these guys don't have the ability to develop their talent because they're not being provided the opportunities to do so. And so more than baseball provides access to affordable housing, food, equipment, career services, financial guidance, mental health coaching, nutrition coaching, strength and conditioning coaches. We fill in the hole of uh, the holes of player development. We are a tool for player development. And we can, you know, we do so many things in the community. We, we do so many things for these teams and these players. We're trying to help baseball uh, grow in, in the U.S. And, and around the world. And so our job is to make baseball a better place. So if you love baseball, uh, you love us. And so we've had a lot of success with, with speaking the way we do, but we've had a lot of success because people know that there's a problem in minor league baseball and there's finally a real solution to fix that. So given the fact that there, there won't be a minor league baseball season this year, what types of things are you guys planning to do to, to help out minor league players like for this specific weird season where there, where there won't be a season? So we're trying to help guys get jobs, yeah. Uh, helping them build a resume and a LinkedIn, helping them actually maximize their 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 time as professional athletes and not have it be a detriment when their career ends. Um, there are several teams or, or leagues that are that are gonna start playing baseball if they can. We don't know the logistics on that yet, but we're able to take the information that we get and try to place guys into these leagues. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're, we're the liaison between these teams and getting them our players because these players sign in to be in more than baseball and they get access to all of these things. We have close to, we, have, we just got over 2000 players. And so um, they, apply, they can apply for a grant and get access to the player grant program. Adam Wainwright gave money, Daniel Murphy gave money. Um, a hundred, you know, a, a bunch of big leaguers have given over four hundred thousand dollars to help more than baseball and help these guys. But then we also have a mental health program, career services program, all this stuff that we're doing to make sure that during such a crazy time like this, base, these players still have a resource and something to 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 use. And Jay, I think that the fact that you see these big leaguers all reaching into their own pockets especially against the backdrop of like a big labor negotiation, right? They're, they're fighting for their salaries here. And to see them reach in and give for something like this. I mean, I know that Adam Wainwright is one of the most charitable guys in baseball. He does so much work with both his time and his money. He is an incredible guy from all accounts, but I think it speaks to the fraternity of baseball players because every single player basically has gone through this process of being a minor leaguer and there's no other way to cut it. We're going to hear from you in a minute about your own experience, but there's really no other way to cut it. It's shitty. It's not cool to be a minor leaguer besides for the fact that you're getting a chance to live your dreams, which obviously is huge, but I'm obviously so impressed with what you've done. And I always wonder, how were you the first guy to think of this? Like so many guys have gone through the system and it's such an obvious need. Your ability to see the need and find a philanthropic way to fill it is awesome. So there's a few ways to look at the system or, or how to fix the system. There's unionizing, right, which is difficult and time-consuming. And in an industry like this that's built on fear, where there's, if these athletes get fired for trying to build a union, there's nothing for them to move on to right. that's of similar importance or similar job. So you try to build a union at UPS, you can do a similar job elsewhere. Or like you try and build a union at Barstool and you get fired, you all go work for The Ringer or other outlets. Right, but right. I mean- Your talent can translate into something uh, of, of similar, in a similar job or whatever. In minor league baseball, there's nothing to fall back to. So already there's a power dynamic 
Uh, these owners own me for seven years. My contract is for seven years. And these players have no say. Uh, they have no union. They have no representation. Mm-hmm. They're, they're seven-year seasonal apprentices, and they only get paid between $45 and $85 a game per level that they're at, right? So you can sue. You can try to build a union, which people have done and failed. And I knew that the, the, uh, the way that we were going to fix this system was built on what can I do to help a kid today? What's something I can do to help him in his career today? Mm-hmm. Well, I can help him get a case of bats. And the difference between hitting 300 and 240 is three hits. Right. 12 out of 50 is 240 and 300. Is right. And he's got his own bats now. So he's not using someone else's bat, which feels a little weird in his hand and turns a double into a lazy fly ball. Right. It's bigger than it sounds. It's the little, it's a little thing. So I can help a kid get a mattress. Right. That's what derailed Aaron's career. <laughs> Jeremy knows how well. Jeremy well, saw me turn a lot of meatballs into lazy fly balls in my career. Oh my God. Did I? Um, <laughs> but there's so many problems within the system. And the only way to solve something like this was to work with the powers that, that, that are at play here. And we knew that we will be successful when people give us the opportunity to explain ourselves. Mm-hmm. People say, oh, there's an organization helping minor leaguers. They must want this. Well, no, on our website, you don't see any of that stuff because that's right. not what we're built on doing. We're built on making sure that these athletes have what they need to build a better ecosystem, to build a better locker room for their development. A happy player is going to play better. And all these teams want is these guys to make the major leagues. That's why they're there. And so we have the ability to work with in the system to create a better player. So I don't want to put you on the spot here. No, do it. But do you think the, the best thing, I, I understand your approach. I think it's the right one. What can we do to help players today is exactly what you said. But if you could wave a magic wand yeah. and help these guys, is the best thing to do for them to unionize? The, the best way to, to fix the system is to work with the people within the system, mm-hmm. right? And to make sure that, there's, that their development is conducive to the environment that they live in. And so unionizing can get these guys to a, a, a point but there'll be such a power struggle that we don't, again, we don't know. Yeah. Like true. Like truly my answer is we don't know what the best way to fix is. We are doing what we can with the positions that we're in. Uh, and, and, and with the, you know, the people that listen, like Adam Wainwright, if we would have begged for a union and, and been advocates, Adam Wainwright wouldn't have given $250,000 to help minor league players. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, the best thing that can happen is an organization giving us support. Either that's the major league baseball players association, that's MLB, that's both of them. That's MILB, that's minor league clubs, that's major league clubs. That's more than just these guys pledging money, but the continued support of, of the growth of these players mm-hmm. is ultimately what's going to make it play better. So like $30,000 a year is what we believe is the threshold between needing us and not needing us. Players need to make that much per year to not need us based on the equipment and the, uh, the housing thing and, and, and food, being happy, right. yeah. like money, money creates happiness, right? Like the threshold for normal people is like, that hurt you to say? 
Money creates happiness. Yeah, yeah it sounded as, like you, as, as grad students, we're familiar with well the eighty thousand dollar threshold. So the threshold is the eighty thousand dollar threshold, right? And so in in minor league baseball, that that threshold is around between twenty five and thirty mm-hmm. for the ability to purchase all their equipment, to take care of their bodies, to eat correctly, to sleep correctly, etc. So you need us to cover that until we can pay guys that amount per year. We yeah, exactly. can work with organizations to pay them more. It's just it comes down to what's the better use of my time building a better environment with the teams and the players are begging them to pay them more. Yeah. So Jay, what you do is great, but some of our listeners may not really understand what life is like as a minor leaguer. So I don't need you to like paint a very dark and macabre picture necessarily, but do you want to tell us a little bit about your time playing uh, professional baseball? Um, I know uh, for our listeners, and so they know, you and I played together in high school in Arizona. We were both Chaparral Firebirds. Um, we definitely played different roles on the team, I would say. <laughs> Jeremy was a middle-of-the-order hitter. I was a uh, catcher who spent a lot of time in the bullpen. And um, then Jeremy moved on to my school, my college's rival, Trinity, in San Antonio, um, and won at least one national championship. Uh, just so our listeners know, and Jeremy doesn't have to brag for himself, Jeremy hit 408 his senior year at Trinity, knocked 11 over the fence, and drove 70 guys across the dish. So that was a big, big year for him. Um, brought him into professional baseball, and now maybe you can tell us a little bit about what playing professional ball was like for you. It was really hard. Yeah. I bet. It was really hard. Competition is really good. Winning doesn't matter. Your teammates don't care about you. You're in a locker room that, you know, is happy to, is okay winning and doesn't really care about losing. You're there because at the lower levels, I never got past short season A ball in Brooklyn in the New York Penn League, but, um, you know, at double A, triple A, the guys are more mature. So like, winning does matter to them and and but in minor league baseball you get a bonus for making the all-star game and you don't get a bonus for making the playoffs your coaches don't care about you they care about you moving up right um because it looks good when you play well and so it's an environment built on um it's it's not conducive to happiness it's really hard and nobody cares about you and you're making very little money you're eating horrible food that's 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 minor league baseball in a, in, a, in a nutshell, was it fun? Yeah, I got, to, I got to be in Pulaski, Tennessee. Cool. You know, I got to be in the South. I got to be in Hold on, Kingsport, hold on. Tennessee. You for the Brooklyn Cyclones, and on the segment where you're talking about the fun you had in minor league baseball, you brought it to Pulaski, Tennessee? <laughs> What's going on, bud? I played for Kingsport, Tennessee. I, I played for the Kingsport Mets my first year, so we're in the Appy League. Happy. You know, I, I've, I've heard about the Kingsport Mets for, for a decade, and I never knew they were in Tennessee. Kingsport, Tennessee, home yeah. of – Home of what? Uh, home, of, home of some things. And then yeah. Bristol – The Kingsport Mets. Bristol, <laughs> Johnson, you, remember, you know the song, Wagon Wheel? You know, they go to the Triangle in Johnson City, Tennessee, uh-huh. so we play in Johnson City, Tennessee. Okay. Um, that's – like, being in the South playing – and being in towns you'll never go to again and, and being in those environments and, and fans are, are not like to play professional baseball is an incredible opportunity and incredible honor to do, but it's really difficult because the environment itself is not conducive to happiness mm-hmm. or success. Mm-hmm. It, it, 
it's you know it'll weed people out and people but like there's so many guys and they just cut you know a thousand players and both of those leagues are cut and um you know but it it was a lot of fun and being a met was a lot of fun and i'm very thankful but like it (laughs) is really hard of course it's really hard it's professional sports. If it was easy, everyone would play a game for millions That's of dollars true. a year. That's I'm, true. I'm curious with, with respect to like your time in the Mets organization, how, how would you evaluate, and I'm just curious as a Mets fan myself, how would you evaluate the job the Mets are doing in, in player development compared to what you were seeing in other parts of the minor league in terms of integrating new data and technology? Like, and training and things like this data mental skills nutrition middle of the road not good not you know normal what, what i've yeah. seen from from a lot of teams you know that i've you know we know the rays do stuff really well yeah. um it, every team is missing certain components it's why i exist but <laughs> yeah. uh the mets did a a a good job in uh i thought coaching was good except for they got rid of my leg kick I thought, um, <laughs> but their nutrition, the nutrition lack, they wouldn't buy us. There was no nutritional food after the games. It was not good. So like, but the Rays do a really good job with that. And the Brewers do a really good job with that. So different teams do different things really well, but the Mets track record of homegrown talent is really strong. Yeah. That's, that's something I think people don't give the Mets enough credit. For. No, they don't. So they draft the Mets draft yeah. really well. Yeah. DeGrom, uh, Cindergard, Nemo, Familia, Nemo, McNeil. Yeah. Yeah. Jeff McNeil's a guy. Pete, who's a great, who's great. Those guys are in my spring training, but like Dom Smith, like solid big leaguers are, um, they draft solid big leaguers. Now, if they did everything perfectly, would the Mets be better and win world series? Like, yes, I, I think so. Because you look at the Astros, they're, a bad example (laughs) but in 2017 actually perfectly they know what they they, they're always top in in their minor leagues they're always some some of the best in the league and in 2017 they traded away four prospects for verlander garrett cole osuna and they didn't trade for osuna osuna was a free agent free agent okay so they traded for garrett cole and verlander yeah those guys won them a world series yeah, yeah. Or got them to a World Series because they traded away talent. They traded away those pieces. So if you if you take your minor league player development seriously and invest properly into the these players, you can create and extend championship windows by by creating more pieces to give away. And so, you know, we look at it as an investment. I was a five thousand dollar investment. I got five thousand dollars worth of opportunity. But these guys who are thirteenth through twenty fifth rounders who get you know, a certain amount of money, 25 to 75, most guys make, you know, less than a hundred thousand dollars in a signing bonus. But um, if you put the time and effort into taking care of them off the field, the dividends will show up on the field. And if they hit 300 instead of 260, then you're going to see them being more valuable as, as, as commodities. people in your organization. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, do you have any thoughts on on basically the shortening of the draft this year, and and are you guys working at all on trying to keep it longer in future years or things like this? So it's going to be five rounds. It was five rounds this year. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's twenty rounds for the foreseeable future, which means there are those 
those 20 rounds, those guys go to short season ball when they get drafted. And so Major League Baseball is cutting short season ball because they say they're going to take those resources and put it into the players they have left. That's not true, though. We don't know if it is or not. There was already going to be a 50% increase in their salaries, but 50% of $7,000 or $3,000 isn't going to do much. It's more money in your pocket, but what's that going to do? In, in I'm honestly shocked that you ballparked that math. I'm good at math. <laughs> <laughs> so cutting the draft gives guys like me little to no opportunity right. to play professional yeah. baseball. And that, that hurts the most. I get from a business perspective, we understand everything that major league baseball does. These guys are seasonal apprentices. They don't care about the majority of minor league baseball players. They have to be there so that they can fill rosters and make sure that games can happen for the top prospects. Like we understand that. But at the end of the day, if you have them there, you might as well see what you, why you have that. And good organizations still find diamonds in those post 20 rounds. I mean, we actually talked about it on our draft episode a lot of value is, is gained by teams in later rounds. And sure, most of them aren't, you know, six foot one Jewish kids, but there are a decent number. They're six foot four Jewish kids. They're six foot four <laughs> Jewish kids, that's right. Um, but there is value to be gotten there, and I would agree with you. Now, you uh, have alluded to, the, to some big name guys that you've been with already, but, you know, you didn't really uh, get to know them well in spring training. Is there anybody that you played for on the Cyclones, whether it's Edgardo Alfonso or Tim Tebow or anybody else who you really got to know who you might have something interesting to tell us about? Fonzie's awesome. Edgardo Alfonso's a great guy. Yeah. I would He's one imagine. of the nicest dudes I've, yeah. I've ever met. He's like my, uh, he was my favorite player when I was like five. And sure. Five. Sure. Yeah. We had a kid, actually. Yeah. Uh, Edgardo Fermin was named after Edgardo Alfonso. Really? Yeah. yeah. So awesome. uh, it was cool to have. Uh, Fonzie was, uh, you know, uh, trying to think who else came down. Noah Syndergaard came down for rehab. Um, what's his name? The, the Dark Knight. What's his name? Matt Harvey. Matt Harvey came down. Awesome <laughs> guy. Great guy. Nimmo yeah. did a lot of rehab with us. But uh, I was in spring training with Tim Tebow's first spring training. was my first spring training. And uh, he was my locker mate. And uh, use your locker mate, so you locker, guys were, right, were right so there. We were friends. Sat next to each other on the bus. Uh, I called him Tom just to piss him off. <laughs> uh, a great story I can tell. So, so uh, I was on the bus. Uh, we were going to a spring training game play in St. Louis, and Michael Piaz was on the bus who went to Coastal Carolina, uh, won a national championship the year I won a national championship. He won a D1, I won a D3. Tim Tebow's on the bus who won two national – well, he won a national championship in, in, Football, in college. Yeah. And so uh, someone was like, so who's won a national championship here? And I was like, oh, I, you know, I won one. And, and Michael Piaz was like, I won one. And Tim was like, I won two. Tim, you won one. Chris Leak won the other one. And he was not happy. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, oh, you know, I was like, jump, dude, you just did the jump pass. Tim Tebow's speech in that, in that game is like, that's one of the so you know like when he was when they lost to Ole Miss and he started crying and then now it's a plaque and he's like yeah. no team will ever so one of the guys comes over I forgot who it was one of the coaches comes over comes over and was like well if you got anything to say today and I was like you will not see a team try harder than this team. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's you know what he's Tim Tebow is is exactly who you see on TV he's real and genuine and and one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet I uh, I got his number 
uh, and uh, never. We won't, we won't make never you give it out on the show. <laughs> never, never. It's okay. It won't text you back. So, all right, we got uh, we got one last question for you, Jay. Before we have to wrap this up, um, what are your thoughts on the Wilpons selling the squad? They aren't selling the squad. They are. Uh, yeah, they they just announced that by the end of 2020, they will they will sell. Who are they selling to? They don't they don't know yet, but they're I think they have up to five offers on the table. It used to be it was two billion with Steve Cohen, right? It, they're not getting that much anymore. So. Yeah, so so it's a tough on them that they torpedoed that. They're they're probably going to cost themselves three hundred million plus in this yeah. deal. God, um, I I I know them. Uh, I was fortunate enough to play for them. Um, I love them. They're good people. They're they're very nice. People. Are they good owners? They're <laughs> don't make them answer that question. They're uh, look. They got they got to a World Series in fifteen. Yeah, and uh, got to a World Series in two thousand. And so <laughs> yeah, uh, you know I I think um, you know I, I I don't know any other MLB owners, but of the ones I do know, I, they're they're good. Night they're good. They're probably the best ones you know would be my guess. The best ones they're the best ones I know. Yeah, they're also they're, the worst ones he knows. And oh, I think that true. might that might say more about what they actually are. But I'm biased. <laughs> as a Mets fan, as a Mets fan to then play for the Mets, it's yeah. uh, it's been an interesting ride. I can't. There's nothing I can do now. I'm stuck with with it. So it's not like I could switch. Yeah, you're for life. Yeah. Well, Sam would tell you that regardless of whether you played or not, if you're a Mets fan for one day in reality, then you're stuck for life. Yeah, that's, um, that's certainly true. Well, thanks for joining us here, Jay. We definitely appreciated having you on. A ton of great info here. Um, is there anything you want to plug before we let you run? Uh, we have a podcast. It's called More the Than Grind. Baseball does. More Than Baseball. It's called The Grind. We interview cool. uh, current and former players about their journey, what they learned, why um, it's, in, it's important uh, to kind of – talk about their the lessons that they learned and so we give kind of we give more than baseball is a place to give players like a platform and a voice and so um we had eric sim king of juco yeah oh yeah great twitter, himself huh? great twitter uh coming up next week is casper wells nice. ty kelly uh matt Perret, uh a lot of big name minor leaguers ty kelly is is a, a matt that i loved and he he's great on twitter now too yeah Sweet yep. potato ties. I'll give them the plug. Sweet potato <laughs> ties coming to City Field 2021. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jay. Well, thanks again. Uh, stay safe out there. Everybody tune in to The Grind, uh, Jeremy's podcast. And I, I guess we're expecting an invite now, too. Yeah, I mean, we had you on our podcast. Players only, man. Sorry. Only. <laughs> I mean, I played minor league ball in my own way. In JV? <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? I played the show for many seasons. Lots of Heat had like yeah, 20. That, I, I can attest to that. Lots of Heat had like 20 starts in the minors before the D-backs called him up, and then he won the Triple Crown in back-to-back -back years and didn't take a loss over uh, 38 <laughs> eight games a season. So, oh, <laughs> oh, dude, love lots of Heat. Man. Lots, lots of Heat. Stuff. And he could deal. He had uh, Walter Johnson's wind-up, so uh, <laughs> you'd love to see that. Um, but, no, okay, we, we won't take the lack of an invite personally. Uh, regardless, we loved having you, and we still hope our listeners uh, listen to you. So thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for coming on, man. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. All 
All right, guys, that about wraps it up for this episode. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks to Jeremy Wolf for coming on the show. Uh, we'll be back to you next week with all the latest in baseball, a new stat for you, and as always, a special segment to round the show out. For the Alonzo Bet, this has been your host, Sam Aaron. I'm Sam, and please remember to like the podcast, leave comments, subscribe, subscribe to Twitter, all the good stuff. And with that, that's all, folks.